the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, and I guess that means we're doing it for real this time. Is that is that right, Jarrell? Just thought I'd, <laughs> thought I'd check in here. Threw us both off a moment ago. Yep. You and better believe it. <laughs> he heard the theme start, and he looked at me, and I looked and said, I'm not doing it. Uh, as you heard in the announcement there, we were uh, due tomorrow to be on the road. We have temporarily postponed it. One of our key speakers has had a death in the family, and so we thought... Uh, better to reschedule. We've got a date in mind. We're waiting for confirmation, so I don't want to give too much detail. But uh, at the end of the day, our apologies. Hopefully we haven't. Well, we freed you up. If you had plans to be with us tomorrow night, now you get a, a free Thursday off. And hopefully you'll be here listening to us on the radio. At any rate, hope you're having a great week so far. We've got a, a pretty involved program for you tonight. Later on in hour number two, Dr. Roger Klein is going to join us. We're going to discuss the uh, court's decision striking down the so-called Affordable Care Act and try to wrestle through the question, okay, now what? We have been wrestling through this question of now what as it relates to health care in America for many, many years. Now, maybe perhaps finally, we can get Congress to do something about it. That plus Patricia Sandoval will join us. She is a former Planned Parenthood worker. She's going to be in town at the 15th annual Walk for Life West Coast coming to San Francisco on Saturday, January the 26th. She'll share a bit of her testimony and we'll talk a bit about the event as well. Then in uh, this first hour tonight, Joyce Cordy, host of Reimagine America from our sister station, 860 AM, The Answer, will stop by. We'll talk a bit about the uh, the on going shutdown. If it makes it to the weekend, it'll be the longest in history. We'll also talk about the president's address from the Oval Office last night and kind of get a feeling for uh, where things stand or not in relationship to both border security and the government shutdown. A week from tomorrow, Thursday, January the 17th, the Mueller investigation will mark 610 days since it began on May 17th of 2017. Over the course of that time, there have been 33 guilty pleas or indictments, including five former Trump advisors, 26 Russian nationals, three Russian companies, one Californian and one London-based lawyer. But as to the evidence of the link, the direct connection between Russian officials and the Trump team... Mueller... Mueller? Mueller? Um, he's sick. <laughs> yes, it's crickets, indeed. <laughs> I think, by the way, that was, was that Ferris Mueller or Bueller's Day Off? <laughs> A 30-year-ago film plus, at least. But <laughs> it certainly makes the point, doesn't it? Where are, in fact, the solid evidence as the uh, impaneled grand jury is now being asked to stay on for another six months? It raises a lot of questions. In an effort to answer some of those questions, we're joined by one of the figures that unwittingly has become central to this case. He is best-selling author Dr. Jerome Corsi. He, of course, the author of six New York Times best-selling books, including the number one bestseller Unfit for Command and The Abomination. He's an economics expert, serves as managing director at Guilford Securities, and is an investigative journalist. His latest book, called Silent No More, How I Became a Political Prisoner for Mueller's Witch Hunt. And Dr. Corsi, as always, great to have you on the program. 
Uh, great to be with you, Craig. Thank you. It was, what, just about a year ago now that you first were given a subpoena uh, in an effort to try and work through an interesting link. And, and, and I'll ask you to explain that in the moment. But, but before we get to that, one question that never seems to be asked, and when it's ans- asked, it never seems to be answered by anybody, and, and that, Dr. Corsi, is simply this. While there's talk about Wikipedia, the leak, Guccifer 2.0 at all, how is it that nobody ever gets down to a central point of this that seemingly is lost? And that is that the content of the Podesta emails and what we learned about the inside workings of the DNC is absolutely true. They've never taken a moment to try and deny any of the content. All the Democrats have seemingly done for the last two years is just just try to focus on the illegality, quote unquote, of the leak. What do you make of that? Well, I think, Craig, you're exactly right. I mean, the content of the emails was what was so damaging to Hillary Clinton's campaign, and um, everyone's had to admit that Julian Assange published authentic Podesta emails, and they were extremely damaging because of their content. Uh, now, clearly, I think Hillary Clinton and John Podesta have tried to change the subject by making the subject um, who stole the emails and trying to blame it on Russia, and then creating this Russia collusion, I think, hoax in order to tie it back to Donald Trump. But the critical point, which you hit on, and I think so many people miss, is that it doesn't matter who stole the emails. It was the content of what Podesta wrote that was so damaging to Hillary Clinton. If he hadn't written that content, it wouldn't have made any difference that those emails were published because they would not have been damaging. Let's talk a bit about what's going on in your life right now. And I'll put the disclaimer up front that I understand that there is not only a potentiality of a of a indictment uh, that's been talked about kind of around the periphery from the Mueller investigation toward you potentially at play here. But I also understand that in recent weeks you have filed a lawsuit against the Mueller investigation for 350 something million dollars. So if I ask you something tonight, Dr. Corsi, that that infringes on areas that you can't discuss, just simply say, Craig, I can't answer that question and, and we'll move forward. First, to the subpoena. A year ago, as I alluded to a few moments ago, you were subpoenaed to sit before the Mueller investigation team and discuss potential links between allegedly Julian Assange, Roger Stone, and yourself. You went through, I understand, 40 hours of testimony. Compared to people like Steve Bannion or Michael Flint at all, you seem to be a very, very minor player in all of this. What possibly could they have had to discuss with you over the course of six sessions and 40 hours of testimony? And two months it took. And this is the subject of my new book, which is Silent No More, uh, which is, by the way, I published as a audio book and an iTunes. I really encourage people to listen to it that way because it's me explaining this ordeal. But to answer the question, the bottom line was that uh, the Mueller team thought I could, I had a connection with Assange so that I could be the critical link, you know, the missing link in the uh, Jerome Corsi of all people, the journalists, that would connect Roger Stone to Julian Assange. And with me connecting Roger Stone and Julian Assange, Roger then talked to Donald Trump, and that was the way the prosecutor's theory, their predetermined theory of the case, would establish the collusion instructing Julian Assange when to release these uh, EPSD emails so as to be most damaging to Hillary. The problem is I don't know Julian Assange. I've never had any contact with Julian Assange. Uh, even Julian Assange this week has said by name, mentioned Jerome Corsi, had no contact with me at all, including in the 2016 election and including about the emails that were stolen from the DNC. Well, so, the irony, of course, as many people know, is that he has been literally sort of a captive of the, the Ecuadorian embassy by choice in London for the better part of three, four years now. And I understand that there are many long periods of which he has been <laughs> denied even access to the Internet. So it would seem to me that even the capacity, if you wanted to be in contact with him, would be fairly difficult. Well, it would have been, but there was no contact. 
And that was the point on which the the, the prosecutors from Mueller's special counsel team just blew up my... You know, I went in with my laptops, with my um, backup the time machine and the hard drives that I've been saving and backing up these computers. I gave them my cell phone. I gave them my email accounts, username, pass. I, I proffered everything because I, I knew I hadn't done anything wrong, and I wanted to... I'll cooperate and give all the information I could to the special prosecutor. Yet from the beginning, they treat you like a criminal. They they blow it up, and even the first day, I forgot a couple of emails, and they suddenly say, I'll walk out of the room, you know, being interrogated in a closed room, no windows, an unmarked FBI building in southeast Washington, and three prosecutors of the special counselor's team six and nine FBI, they walk out of the room and they say to my attorney, you know, do they call into a separate conference room that now they can prosecute me and put me in jail for life because I lied to them. I didn't lie to them. I forgot a couple of emails. And the irony, of course, in many of these investigations, they already know the answer to the questions that they're asking anyway. Part of this seems to turn on one email communication in specific, and this is public knowledge. It is a communication allegedly between you and Roger Stone dated August 2nd of 2016, in which you say, and I quote, word is friend and embassy plans two more dumps, close quote. And they are essentially trying to pin the entirety of uh, their potential. And I have to say the word potential because I understand that they have not actually indicted you, but they have discussed that. They have threatened that. Word is here, friend in embassy plans two more dumps. On that statement, they are saying that that is the evidence that you knew that the information was there and was about to be released in an effort to try to damage the Clinton campaign. How do you respond to that? Well, as I explained to the special uh, counselors, prosecutors, uh, and, in fact, Julian Assange affirms, I mean, uh, I figured it, in July and August 2016, I had my 25th wedding anniversary. My wife and I and family took a trip to Italy. And uh, I had time. I figured out on my own that Assange had possessed his emails. And I can explain how I figured that out, but I did figure it out on my own. Now, since I've been a child, my father used to say to me, now, Jerry, will you connect the dots and figure these things out, nobody's going to believe you. No, you're also an investigative journalist. That's important to point yeah. out, I think, I think. And I do this for a living. So I say word is because I'm trying to make it sound more believable than I just figured this out myself. But the truth is, and I told the special prosecutors, and they couldn't find anyone who told me or connected to Assange. None of us can find it because it didn't exist. However I phrase that email to make it appear as if I had a source, I didn't have one. So, so is it fair to say here, in a sense, maybe hindsight, Dr. Corsi being twenty twenty, that this was maybe a little bit of a tinge of, of braggadocia, that, you know, word is, so it sounds like you've got a source, it sounds like you've spoken with someone, because it would seem to me that if, if Mueller's going to make his case, um, it, it's not just this email between you and Roger Stone, but there's got to be an email between Julian Assange and you confirming that that information had been shared. Well, you can position it that way. I mean, sure. I mean, the fact is the special prosecutor couldn't find because it doesn't exist. And we spent over 20 hours looking at all the people I had been communicating with in 2016, and none of them were connected with Julian Assange. And I told the special prosecutor, despite saying word is and making it sound like I had a source, if I had talked to Julian Assange, I would have said, Julian, I've spoken to Assange, and this is what he has, because it wouldn't have been a crime for me to speak to Julian Assange. I could easily have done it as a reporter. In New York Times v. U.S., the Pentagon Papers case makes it very clear that I could have talked to Assange even if he had stolen classified information. Uh, but the point is, I did figure it out myself, and that's what was so hard for the prosecutors to understand and they, I don't know, they yet accept it, but Assange has affirmed I was right this week, saying we never had any contact, that I've never had any contact with Jerome Corsi. Um, I put, connected the dots after July 22nd, 2016, when Assange released 
40,000 emails and Debbie Wasserman Schultz that came from the Democratic National Committee's server. I knew that server contained Podesta's emails, and it was remarkable to me that none of Podesta's emails were included in the July 22nd dump. And when Assange said he had more emails to release, I figured whoever got into that email server must have seen Podesta's emails, and that was the mother load, and I believed that was going to come next, and I just happened to be right. And, of course, at the end of the day, the irony is, uh, as you point out, it could simply be argued that even if you had inside knowledge, you were simply communicating information. It's not as if you colluded or orchestrated or, or somehow was was the, the, the mechanism by which this data dump would take place. And for that matter, uh, it probably could be argued. And I, and I mean nothing personal or, or demeaning by this. But Roger Stone, a fairly well-known Republican operative, he was high-placed within uh, the Trump camp. I, Roger Stone, I don't imagine, needed anybody to introduce him, so to speak, to Julian Assange. He probably could have pulled that himself, pulled that off on himself. So at the end of the day, trying to work you into the middle of all of this that doesn't seem to have a lot of point to it, is, is the point I'm making. Well, I think you're right, Craig. I mean, look, I'm a reporter. I wasn't part of the Trump campaign. And I'm sure, if you think about it, if I had a contact with Roger, with Assange, I gave Roger would have leapfrogged me taken that contact and gone directly to Assange himself. But I didn't have anybody. I did not contact Assange. And so I was persecuted in this 40 hours. That's what this, my, my ebook, Silent No More, is about how massive information these prosecutors have, and yet they get it wrong, and they persecute you if you don't tell them what they want to hear that fits into their predetermined theory. I didn't have a contact with Assange. I did figure it out myself. And uh, I'm sorry, but I'm being persecuted because I was smart enough to connect the dots. Well, if anything, from some of the public pronouncements made by Roger Stone, it almost seems as if they're trying to kind of slide you into the fall guy position. I have heard Stone as much as accuse you of trying to, quote, sandbag him on a fabricated charge. And again, uh, you know, it, it just seems to be the odd guy in the middle of the odd stream of information flow that at the end of the day would have probably likely gone public anyway, whether or not you or Roger Stone uh, you know, even had corresponded about any aspect of this. And it still comes down to the fact that we are here now almost 603 days into the Mueller investigation. And while a plethora of indictments have been handed down, they've been largely handed down against Russians, not Americans. And the connecting of the dots here at the end of the day, the, the big focus in trying to demonstrate that there was some kind of... Um, uh, cooperation taking place here between Russian operatives or the Russian government and the Trump campaign to to throw the November 16 election. Well, that has yet to be proven. And you have to wonder, with the extension of the of the grand jury now been paneled for now another six months, uh, whether or not that's simply trying to buy more time or what exactly that means. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. We'll also talk a bit, too, to the degree which he can share with us the reasons behind this $350 million lawsuit that has been filed by Dr. Jerome Corsi against Muller and the team. We'll come back to more of our conversation. Our visit today with Dr. Jerome Corsi. Silence no more. How I became a political prisoner of Muller's witch hunt. A timeout. Back to more as our conversation continues. All right, we're a bit late, but uh, important things to talk about here today. Let you, you caught up on traffic. 522, and we've got the latest in the KFAX Traffic Center with Michael Bennett. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to our conversation. Dr. Jerome Corsi, he has now released a brand new publication called Silence No More, How I Became a Political Prisoner of Mueller's Witch Hunt, uh, published by Post Hill Press, now available as an e-book. Dr. Corsi, as I understand it, after all of the hours of testimony, all of this back and forth, there is no actual indictment against you. And you have rejected any sort of a plea deal. And in what many from a legal standpoint are calling an unusual move, you've actually filed a lawsuit 
against the Mueller team and the investigation, alleging illegal surveillance, the leaking of grand jury testimony to the press, and criminal prosecutorial misconduct in questioning. Tell me more about that. Well, also, there's a um, there's a audio book, and you can hear me in the nine and a half hours in my own voice in iTunes or Amazon.com recount this story. I felt like I was under a inquisition. They got angry. They had an eight-inch thick book with all the materials about me in it. They would ask me questions, and I'd say, well, you know, I'd give an answer. They'd pull out, and you know, two years ago, you wrote this email that said, I forgot about it. I don't have a perfect memory of all these emails, but they had everything. They had, I think I've been under intelligence surveillance from the NSA since I, 2004, when I co-authored Unfit for Command with John O'Neill, the Swift Boat book against uh, John Kerry when he was running for president. And uh, I've written 20 books since 2004, and my attorney said, you know, if you're looking to wake there's a lot of Democrats back there who are corpses. I mean, seven of my books have been New York Times bestsellers, two number one, The Abomination in 2008, and my current bestseller, which is Killing the Deep State. And so I think, I think the Mueller team really targeted me, in part, to silence me and get rid of me. And uh, this lawsuit wants to expose what I think is illegal, Electronic surveillance has been detected on me for a long time, leaking to the grand front grand jury information legally by the special prosecutor to the press, and uh, the way I was questioned, the techniques that were used, I think are criminal prosecutorial misconduct, and I want these cases that's brought to the American public's attention. These are serious claims. I think they have merit, and I want the court to hear the case, even if we have to take it all the way to the Supreme Court. I plan to do that. Now, some have alleged that this is simply an attempt to try and essentially stop any kind of an indictment in its tracks. How do you answer that? Uh, this is a serious complaint. I intend for these issues to be pursued. I mean, Mueller can do whatever Mueller wants to do. I did not lie. Uh, I uh, told the truth. The, the one plea they wanted me to plead guilty to was fraudulent. Uh, my first day of testimony, I forgot a couple of emails. They allowed me to amend the testimony. And when they gave me this one plea they wanted me to plead guilty to, it was the first day's mistaken testimony without acknowledging they'd allowed it to be amended. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, my faith is very strong. I'm not going to stand in front of God and a federal judge and say I knowingly and willfully gave them information I knew to be false in order to mislead the special prosecutor, special counselor, uh, and the FBI. When I did not do that, I had some lapses of memory. I'm 20, I'm 72 years old. I can't remember my 2016 emails our conversations with any precision. Well, and anybody's got to know, sitting there being grilled nonstop, off and on, over the course of six different sessions for a total of 20 hours, has got to be pretty stressful, hours. too. 40 hours. 40 hours. 40 hours. Yeah, by the end of it, my mind was mush. I've been constantly amending my testimony when they played this memory trap game on me, and they were happy to do it when I was providing information they wanted, but the moment I couldn't give them a link to Assange, the special counselor prosecutors blew it up, and now they were going to prosecute me. And I, and the charge that they wanted me to plead guilty to, the unamended testimony, I'm not, I wouldn't swear to a federal judge I had committed that crime, which I did not commit. And I, I, I defied them. I said, I'm not going to do it. And I filed this char this federal court case because I want no one else to have to suffer what I suffered. This is not America. This is not the way. This is not justice. This is um, an inquisition like the KGB before they sent you to the gulag. When we heard, as we all did last week, that uh, Mueller had requested of a judge and was granted. Uh, permission to extend, to keep the grand jury impaneled for an additional six months. What did you make of that? What does that say to you? Yeah, I don't have any clue. I mean, I, obviously, they. I don't think Mueller has anything. Uh, they, I mean, they indicted a lot of Russians who are never going to stand trial, 
never going to. So those are those are just showboating. Uh, they know these Russians are never, including the Russian lawyer that was indicted this week by the Southern District of New York. She's never going to come back and stand trial. Well, just because they're indicted doesn't mean they're guilty. And you know the charging of Manafort for tax issues that go back to 2005 and 2006, charging General Flynn because of this process crime, evidently he did submit something that wasn't true to the special prosecutors or the FBI. I didn't do that, and I wouldn't plead that. So my case is totally different, but I, I still don't think Mueller has a case. If he did, he'd bring it. Yeah, you'll almost get a sense around the periphery of some of the challenges, the indictments against the Russians, who, as you say, are not here. They're not coming here. They're, they may be indicted, but that doesn't mean that they've been proven guilty, nor are they ever going to stand trial for these accusations. But at the end of the day, it, it does sort of begin to take on, after going on nearly 610 days, a week from tomorrow, that uh, if there was some there there, something would have happened by now. And you almost have to wonder if there's an attempt to bring anything out since they can't been able to, to really haven't been able to find anything substantive and even if you read those indictments of the russians who are never going to come here the rosenstein when he announced them from the justice department made it clear that the posting on, on social media by these russians allegedly who did this did not affect the outcome of the election and the fundamental premise of the entire Mueller investigation has not been established uh, Julian Assange has said that the Russians, he told Sean Hannity this, had nothing to do with getting him the stolen emails from the Democratic National Committee. And now Mueller's come out and said, I have not had any contact with Julian Assange. Julian Assange has said this. And, and Mueller has not gone to see Julian Assange. They haven't proved that the Russians stole the emails. And they haven't proved that anything was done to impact the election. So they, you know, usually when legitimate criminal investigations are done. First of all, there's a crime. And then they find a suspect. That Mueller invented a crime, this Russian collusion, and he has already a suspect before the investigation began. They want to impeach Donald Trump. And I know this firsthand, because I went through this horror show for 40 hours, and I wanted to bring a federal district court case for $350 million, make it serious, and bring the attention of the American public how abusive and out of control Mueller's been. They should pay for this. No other American should have to suffer what I've suffered. Dr. Corsi, you have detailed, certainly deeper than we can uh, have time to, to go into this evening, uh, your experience inside of Silent No More. If folks want to get a copy of that, where is that? Is that available through Amazon? Yes, Amazon. And please get the, if you can, get the audio book, because that's me recording it for nine and a half hours. It's also an e-book. It's also on iTunes, so you can get it as an uh, e-book, uh, audiobook, I'm sorry, it's an audiobook and podcast on iTunes, and it will be in print in the bookstores uh, in probably end of February, beginning of March. Okay, good to know. And again, the title is Silent No More, How I Became a Political Prisoner of Mueller's Witch Hunt by Dr. Jerome Corsi. Dr. Corsi, as always, we appreciate the time and the insights, and uh, we miss you uh, much continued luck in this uh, this journey. I, I suspect it's going to be a long one for a while. Well, thank you very much, Craig, and God bless. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. All right, you take care now. There's Dr. Jerome Corsi. More information, by the, by the way, available on the web at jeromecorsi.com. All right, we're at 534. Let's take a time out. We'll get you updated on some traffic. When we come back, we'll turn to page, talk a bit about the ongoing government shutdown. What's that look like? What's going to happen when it reaches the longest one in history this coming Saturday? All that and more was Joyce Cordy joins us coming up next. Right now, though, Michael Bennett joins us for a look at traffic. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation, 538. And uh, we pivot to another topic related to the Trump administration. That, of course, is the current government shutdown. Now, many of us watched or heard the address from the Oval Office last night. 
president again making the case for congressional funding for the wall and no real promise of anybody budging anywhere. If anything, the notion of any sort of deal making going on between this administration and this new Congress, probably not in the cards, at least not for a while. Could something happen before it marks the longest government shutdown in history? Let's get some insights now from radio talk show host Joyce Cordy. Joyce is the founder and president of Reimagine America, and her informative show can be heard Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer, where she brings a unique experience from the world of business, business management, to many current political, economic, and governance challenges that our nation is facing and affords listeners some practical solutions, many solutions that seem, sadly, to elude those in government. Joyce, as always, great to have you on the show. First, your reaction. The president's address last night, not a lot of new information. If anything, it seemed as if he dug in, and that followed by Chuck Schirmer and Nancy Pelosi digging in. Yes, except they looked like they were hostages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's the name of that famous painting? A lot, a lot of the memes out there seem, seem yeah, to have I, equated them to, to that. The only thing missing was the pitchfork. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, instead, we had wired flags. Um, I thought Nancy looked fabulous. Whoever did her makeup was really good. Um, but... Uh, but neither side, neither side has a compelling argument um, at this point. I mean, it is time. This is now going to be, because the meeting this afternoon lasted about 15 minutes, um, this is now going to be the longest shutdown in American history. And the answer to all of this is so simple. There is no... Um, The public will at this point needs to be for get on with it and um, and and we're going to hold both your party feet to the fire to actually come up with a compromise on border security. Um, as we've learned this week, thank you, M- uh, NBC, uh, they caught six terrorists on the southern border and 21 on the northern border. So we're not talking about putting up walls. We've got to talk about 21st century solutions in the 21st century. Well, and there seems to be, and I, and I you know, it, it, it kind of is a game of semantics right now between both sides, because the irony is as much as there is a press to deal with um, creating a, a wall, slats, a barrier, whatever you want to call it, something that doesn't allow people to go over or around at the southern border, uh, it, it denies the fact that you still have between East Coast, West Coast, 6,000 miles of unprotected coast, and the fact that most of the people that come to this country with nefarious activities at mind, be it terrorism or drug distribution, they come in through more traditional means, like through ports both airports and public ports. And I I remind people with a bit of chagrin that all of the 19 terrorists on 9-11 were not only in the United States legally, albeit perhaps with expired or uh, manipulated visas, but they came in Uh legally and they all flew here. So while I get the president's point, uh, I think the challenge is holding the American people and the American government hostage while they play this game of tit for tat between uh, the now Repo- Democrat controlled House, um, the Senate and the executive office. Uh, it, it just it it doesn't seem like anybody wants to budge. And meanwhile, there's all of these other potential issues piling up in the background. Well, that's just for a moment, because you know me, I'm a, I'm, I'm a numbers person. I'm a poli- businesswoman, not a politician. So let's talk about those numbers. 800,000 people are not going to get a paycheck on Friday. 450,000 of those people had to work. Now, you, you know, there's been a lot of emphasis on those government workers. But let's talk about what else goes on. You know, when those people own houses, they drive cars, they go to the grocery store, so there is a follow-on effect just from their checks. Then you take into account the fact that the second biggest industry in Washington and Virginia, Northern Virginia and Maryland is tourism. 
I mean, this is this coming week is the week last year when my granddaughter went to Washington on, on her eighth grade field trip. I can assure you that that those kids who are having those trips denied to them because everything's closed, the Smithsonian, the Capitol, everything, um, are going to remember it for the rest of their lives. And guess what? They're going to vote in about six years. Well, and not only that, but of course, this is this is also ammunition that that could potentially backfire, uh, frankly, on either party or on on either branch of government. Uh, And we need to be mindful of that, that we're already gearing up for the 2020 election cycle here. And, uh, you know, it's not going to bode well when either side is reminding the other that you helped contribute to or forced the longest shutdown in government history over this particular topic. I, I, none of us have a crystal ball, but based on all of your years of observing Washington, D.C. behavior and knowing the cast of characters as we do, Pelosi, Shermer, the president, how do you see this thing playing out when clearly, at least as of this time last night, both sides clearly dug their heels in. The president's not budging until he gets his wall. The Democrats are not budging to give him one. So what happens? Well, they had a meeting this afternoon that lasted about 20 minutes, and the president said, Nancy, you going to give me my wall? And she said no, and he said, meeting over. Um, and they got to get over it. I'm like, all right, so here's the reality. The reality is that the Department of Homeland Security asked for a systematic, modern, combined, you know, a a system of border defense, which includes fencing they can see through in populated areas, drones, um, you know, uh, sensors, um, access roads so that they can get to people as they're crossing the border, et cetera. I mean, a, a comprehensive and a lot of equipment to detect drugs at the points of, at the ports of, of entry. Okay, all really sensible things, and then they asked for some for more medical personnel and more administrative judges. All really rational things, under two billion dollars, by the way, folks. And then at, there's this five point seven billion dollar line for this wall that Department of Homeland Security says they don't need, don't want, and can't be built. Well, the other challenge, I think, the, the president here, I think, is trying to follow through in, in, in albeit perhaps a bit of a backward fashion, but trying to follow through on what became one of the cornerstones of his campaign two years ago, and that is, we're going to build a wall. Who's going to build it? Mexico's going to pay for it. Now, of course, the irony is Mexico steadily fed, steadfastly said we're not doing any such thing. The, the, the president is trying to try to, to suggest that, well, the renegotiation of the old NAFTA agreement is going to bring so much more revenue into the country that that's more than going to make up for it. Of course, the irony is that when he says billions and billions of dollars will be coming into the United States, that that's not all tax dollars. That in fact we've we've lowered that threshold, so that might be billions of dollars in business for the American public, but that doesn't mean or equate to five billion dollars coming directly into the U.S. Treasury to pay for this, does it? No, and you know what? Under United States law and the United States Constitution, Mexico could not pay for the wall. <laughs> we can't take money from a foreign country in that way. You know, there there are treaties in which, you know, there are uh, NATO, for example. Everybody puts in their contribution to NATO, and then NATO reimburses the United States for expenses that it has in paying salaries for its troops, et cetera. But you couldn't do this if you wanted. And the fact is that when you talk about a humanitarian crisis, let me give you just a few statistics that you're not from the mainstream news. There are 1.9 million Native Americans trapped in um, Red Rock Country, the Navajos, and the Sioux on the big reservations around Wounded Knee because there's no snow plowing because that's an in, a Department of Interior uh, Indian Affairs Bureau responsibility. Those people can't even go shopping. There are 38 million Americans who get food stamps. Do you think that doesn't have an impact on every grocer in America along with the people who depend on those food stamps? And 
you know, so, and, and you know, do you know that that lettuce, remember the, the recent scare we had with lettuce? With well, the romaine, yes, the recall, hmm? The, yeah, the USDA agricultural inspectors who inspect that lettuce, that packaged product, before it comes to market, as well as your meat, well, moreover, the the fact that we we talk about the importance of security, and there's been the the large dynamics sold here in relationship to um, counter terrorist measures, and yet, sadly enough, an increasing number of TSA workers are just calling in sick. Hey, it's the winter season. I've got the flu. Can't make it. I'm not coming in. Why? They're not getting paid, and for some funny reason, they don't want to work without getting paid. I, I think the problem here is, and the one that we all need to be reminded of, and that is twofold. Number one. The very people that are being impacted by this, and the impact is growing exponentially day by day, uh, are not only taxpayers, but they're also voters. And they will remember, depending upon which side they wish to blame, when they get to the ballot box in uh, a little over a year and 10 months. Uh, the other issue at hand here that I think we, we need to be mindful of, and that is that it's easy for any of us to opine. And I've I've had these discussions where, well, you know, he, the president is taking a stand or the Democrats are taking a stand and and they're not going to back down. This is a this is a the, the principle of it all. All right. I get that. The irony is that most of the people that make that claim are none of the people that are being directly and dilatoriously impacted by this. And I don't even believe it when the statement is made that the president has heard from many people that are being furloughed that say, go ahead and keep this thing going for as long as you need to. And unless there's an awful lot of wealthy, lower-tier government workers that none of us know about, uh, most Americans are making it paycheck to paycheck. If the boss walked in to me tomorrow and said, hey, no paycheck for the next 30 days, I'd have a lot of explaining to do with Wells Fargo Bank as to why, hey, no paycheck, that means no house payment. So I think we need to be mindful here that in the point of making the point at a political level between the legislative and the executive branch that caught in the middle are the very people that the two sides were elected to serve. Let's take a time out. We're going to come back to more of our conversation with Joyce Cordy, host of Reimagine America, heard Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The answer, more information available, including resources, podcasts, etc., at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. When we come back, let's talk a bit about healthcare California style. So we know the ACA, for the moment, tossed out by a federal judge in Texas, what next and what of expanding health care to ridiculous levels here in the state of California by our new governor? All evading the question, who's going to pay for it? Back with more of Lifeline right after this. Get a look at traffic right now. Who's got that? Well, Michael Bennett's got it in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Joyce Cordy is with us tonight. And, of course, her program, Reimagine America, can be heard every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. More information available, including lots of great resources at reimagineamerica.org. Joyce, of course, we're all aware that a Texas judge has said no to the ACA, essentially saying that the mandatory uh, or the mandate within the legislation essentially makes it all null and Void, and many are now asking what next, and others are rubbing their hands together saying, aha, time for us to move in with more socialized medicine. Expansion of health care, of course, is a concern, uh, not only in terms of those that don't have it right now, but then the big question in some of the more liberal states, like New York, like California, is what next as they try to provide health care for all? Not that we necessarily have a problem with that, but the one question that Centrally repeatedly never gets answered is, who's going to to pay for all of this, and who's going to be on that list of getting all the goodies? Well, it's changing in California. We are now going to cover uh, the governor, the new governor, is now going to try to impose a mandate again uh, that would require everyone to have health insurance. Um, I can't say, and by the way, the idea of a mandate is a conservative idea. It came out of heritage originally. Um, and I can't say that I really oppose it, but I think the one-size-fits-all uh, required um, uh, 
insurance coverage plans um, are a problem. So I don't know. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, um, and I would be inclined to believe that the Supreme Court, if it said uh, you can't have a mandate, um, if, if I, the Supreme Court said the mandate was a tax, so I suspect they will overturn the Texas judge and that um, California will, in fact, impose a mandate. And who will pay for that? The 53% or so of Californians who have employer-sponsored health care, they will pay for it in higher premiums and bigger deductibles. We've seen that phenomena since uh, 2012 when we had our first uh, actual premium year experience with um, the Affordable uh, Care Act and the fact that people with pre-existing conditions uh, cannot be charged anything differently, nor are there any reinsurance pools. So it's the financing of this, as you correctly point out, that is the problem. But if we are back to our previous conversation about unauthorized um, immigration, if the state of California and New York City and followed soon by New York State are going to say we're going to give that coverage to anybody who is in the state regardless of their immigration status do you can you say magnet yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, not not only that but can you also say bankrupt which is what we're you know seemingly heading I mean again the the idea to, to break down to the basics here the idea of pooled risk which is the way insurance of any sort works be it your car your boat your house your health is Everybody pays in premiums. You receive certain benefits in exchange for that. And at the end of the day, the hope is that a higher amount of money gets paid into the pool than taken out in services. So at the end of the day, if I go a whole year, I'm paying my premiums, I never see a doctor or never have a need for surgery or an operation, I'm in good health, then the money that I've paid is helping to pay for the bills of those that have been hospitalized, et cetera, et cetera. So if you have a higher percentage of people that don't need it than do, then pooled risk works. The problem here, of course, has been just the opposite. You've got a greater number of people that are in that are not healthy than those that aren't. And at the end of the day, with any ability or inability to control any of the cost in terms of runaway inflation, and suddenly we have an absolute formula for a disaster here. And, and I, I think almost the, the irony is, Joyce, that there's so much of a push towards a one-payer system here. Uh, that at the rate we're going, things are going to become so broken, I have to wonder how long it's going to be b before a lot of the major carriers, many of whom will have systematically over the last three, four years, pulled out of exchanges and hospitals that won't participate, doctors that don't participate. How long is it going to be before this thing just collapses in on itself? And then all of a sudden, the purveyors of socialized medicine or the one-payer system say, aha, see, this is the only option we have left, so we're going to come in as the big heroes. Well, they're going to try that because it, they, what they, one of the things the governor wants to do is offer subsidies for incomes up to 150000 And so those are people who have employer-based care, but they don't get a subsidy. So their cost of care for a whole family is probably higher than it would be if they had an exchange plan. Now, I think they get better benefits and, and they get top-tier health care. But everybody should be wary of Kaiser's position. Kaiser has said that if California went to a single-payer system, like the one that was described in, um, in Sacramento last year and that died in committee, that Kaiser would cease operations in California, hmm. that they would not be able to afford to provide care. So when and and believe it or not, Nancy Pelosi has has said she's going to allow hearings on the concept of Medicare for all because she wants the sunlight on the fact that Medicare for all doesn't wouldn't it, it sounds like a panacea but wouldn't work. It would cost thirty two trillion dollars in a decade. We are also already twenty one trillion in in uh, debt. Who is going to pay that bill? 
Well, and this is the one question that they never answered from Bernie Sanders to Hillary Clinton on down. And that is, you know, yeah, it sounds like a beautiful idea. Medicare for all and a car in every garage and two chickens in every pot. Beautiful. Who is going to pay for it? Free education for all. Love the concept. Who is going to pay for it? And when the government has been, as we've seen in the last year, two years, in the process of reducing taxes, both at the corporate level, and we'll all find out April 15th how it helps any of the individual taxpayers. But when you're, when you're reducing the income and exponentially, potentially, increasing the outflow, um, I, I don't care if you have a 5% GDP. It's not going to be able to support the trillions of dollars that, as Joyce Cordy just aptly pointed out, it would cost to support so-called free Medicare for all. The other little sticky wicket here that nobody is discussing, including some of the so-called conservative Republicans, and that is, did we entirely forget about this $21 trillion debt that we've not been reducing, but in fact have been adding to year over year over year? At some point, folks, the rooster is going to come home. No doubt about that. All right. We thank Joyce Cordy for being with us tonight. Catch more of her insights and musings Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. That's her sister station. And you can find out more about her great work, resources, and podcasts at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. All right. At 6 o'clock from the mighty KFAX. What are we going to do here? We're going to take care of a little bit of uh, news, a little bit of traffic. When we come back, Patricia Sandoval joins us, hour number two tonight. We'll talk about the upcoming 15th annual Walk for Life West Coast. We're also going to give away some tickets. What do we do? Speeding tickets, Jarrell? Parking tickets? What? Well, Jarrell and I'll Jarrell and I'll talk about that offline here and figure out what. And we'll tell you more after this. His vote is speeding tickets. You just love to be able to pull somebody over, flash the lights, boom, sign no. here. Yeah, yeah, you would. All right. <laughs> Let's see how many speeding tickets may be impacting traffic. Michael Bennett, what's going on out there? Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com. <laughs> 